You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Know your role and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Bill Curry. Bill is a retired American football player and coach. He played for Georgia Tech and then spent 10 seasons in the NFL most notably playing in the first Super Bowl and winning with the Green Bay Packers in 1966. He retired in 1974 and transitioned into coaching and by 1980 was head coach of Georgia Tech, leading them to the 1985 All-American Bowl, for which he was also named Coach of the Year. In 1988, he was the coach of the University of Alabama and led them to the Sugar Bowl win over Army and a tie for the SEC title with Auburn and Tennessee. He then went on to coach the University of Kentucky and was the inaugural coach of Georgia State University in 2008. Bill radiates humility, wisdom and optimism. He represents the bright side of human potential and in this interview talks about the long and winding road of his playing and coaching career and what it has taught him about life, love and the ripple effect of our actions. His insights are timeless and run very deep and he personalizes them in a way that makes the distance between us, whether we are, in his words, a guy from South Central LA or a mountain boy from the hills of North Georgia, seem much smaller. The parts of the interview that stayed with me long after it was finished were, 
his view that football is life marked off in a hundred yards and on the field you were going to get knocked down and then you had the choice to either lie down and wallow in self-pity or get up and go on to the next play. How an American football team is a diverse group that represents the melting pot that is the USA and how it was a privilege to teach the people in his teams to learn to love each other. And the fact that in football, you need your teammates' help to get the jersey on over the pads. And this helps you understand that sweat smells the same on everyone. This is a wonderful interview with so much wisdom and warmth, and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. The Great Coaches Podcast. Good morning, Coach Bill Curry, and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Thank you so much. I feel like a little bit of an imposter because you put that great moniker on there. I'm certainly not a great coach, but I have been a coach most of my life, and I appreciate the compliment. Coach Curry, just about every time I say that to a great coach, they say, I feel like an imposter when you say that. So you're just (laughs) going to have to trust me that you qualify as a great coach. (laughs) Can I start with something really simple? Where are you in the world, and what have you been up to so far today? Well, we are 27 floors up in a high-rise in Atlanta, Georgia, the most unlikely finishing place because we intend to stay here the rest of our lives for a couple of kids from College Park, Georgia. College Park is the uh, small town that sort of surrounds our airport, which is now the world's largest. We grew up listening to the airplanes and we, we decided we didn't want to do that. We've been through the NFL and the coaching ranks and all those kinds of things that happen. And in our married life of 58 years, we've moved 34 times. And my wife has announced that that, that this will be the last move. We intend to leave this condominium feet first. Uh, So that will, and we hope that's a long time from now. So we're in Atlanta, Georgia. We love Atlanta. It, It is our home. We've loved the other places we've lived, which is virtually all over America. But this is what we love most. Coach Curry, I can't wait to talk to you about Atlanta and all your experiences you've had over such a long and illustrious career. But could I just start by taking you back a little bit in time? Because you yourself have had experience with some pretty handy coaches, Bobby Dodd, Don Shula, and a little guy called, hang on, I want to get the pronunciation right, Vince Lombardi, I think it is. You got the pronunciation. Thank you. What is it you think great coaches do differently from the others? The really great ones, and now we're not playing with words. I'm talking about the the people. I started to say the guys, but it it doesn't have to be a male. There are plenty of females that are among the great, great coaches. They have something. I think it's God-given. I think it's inborn. I think it's genetic. And you can almost feel it if you're – my father was one of those. And so I watched it. From the time I was an infant, he was a hand-to-hand combat instructor in the United States Army Infantry during World War II. And my first memories of my dad were in his military uniform. And then he was really a hard-nosed guy. And he was hard on his number one son, me. And there were some good things about that. And there were some things that weren't so good. But he, he mellowed. He experienced a conversion in his faith and became a a wonderful guy. He stopped being a hand-to-hand combat instructor, but I learned from him what it's like to compete with all your heart because that's what he did. He had been a skinny, sickly kid 
And in four years' time, he became a junior national light heavyweight weightlifting champion in the three Olympic lifts and then coached weightlifting at a military school when I was a kid. And he coached boxing and he coached gymnastics and all of his teams were champions. He had that special something while he was coaching. He moved on into the business world and had success there as well. And then Bobby Dodd was a gentle He seemed like a kind soul, and he was, unless you cut class. If you cut class, he turned into the world's greatest monster, and you found yourself at 6 a.m. running up and down stadium steps until at some point you decided that chemistry at 8 o'clock in the morning was a wonderful idea. That's That's what he did for us, which was maybe the best thing any of the coaches did. Lombardi expressed his in this in the most forceful rhetoric in which he could just Willie Davis, the great Hall of Fame defensive end who had such an impact on my life. We'll probably talk about him later. Willie said, I felt like when Lombardi jumped on me, I had been slapped in the face, slapped. Lombardi had the, the, the gift of a kind of a rhetoric that, that was painful. It hurt and you didn't want to hear it again. For the rest of you, you didn't want to hear it the rest of your life. So he could force feed his system into you in ways that whether you liked it or not, if you were going to stay there, number one, you weren't going to be a racist. And number two, you were going to run the system that he designed and you were going to implement his system or you were going to be on the next Greyhound out. Don Shula had this remarkable capacity to be the hardest of all of them. He was physically the most demanding of all of those guys that I've mentioned. Our training camps were just unbelievable. Uh, Lombardi had 10 days of two-a-days. Shula had six weeks of two-a-days. Two-a-day practices in football with pads, both practices, that's, that's not even human. But we did that every year. If you survived the training camp, you were ready. And that's why I think Physically, his teams were tougher, but he then managed to shape a relationship with the guys such that we knew he trusted us and we trusted him and nobody could beat us and nobody could beat us. I could say that for all of those coaches that I've just mentioned, but Shula's the winningest coach in the history of the NFL. And I believe that's the reason, but he also had, he had the capacity to look into your soul. He did this for me. And he could see something in you that you had not seen in yourself. He would say, you can do this when you had not thought you could do it. And so each one had a different personality and a different mode of expression. But each the, the, the certain something that you're asking for here is something that's inexpressible. It's a gift from God. It's something that when the, when the person walks in the room, You just say, oh, my gosh, what is it about that guy? What is it about that woman that makes them different? And, uh, gee, I'd like to play for that person. And I would throw my my heart into the fray if I played for that person. So that's a long-winded answer, but they got something that other folks don't have. You talked about racism and decision-making under duress, and I'd like to come back to them later on if we could, because I'd like to just build a little bit along on your coaching journey. And your journey as a human being as well, because you started off actually talking about your wife who has a PhD. And I can see uh, what other people won't be able to see on this podcast behind you is a stack of books. And I've actually uh, seen you interviewed where you've talked about leadership. And 
you've referenced everyone from Helen Keller, Rudyard Kipling, Teddy Roosevelt, and there was even one art, uh, article I read where you talked about ghosts, the German polymath. So I wanted to say, if you could go back to 1976 when you were starting out as a coach, what leadership advice would you give yourself knowing what you know now? Spend more time with each individual. Get inside their head, get inside their soul, and find out what it is that makes that person tick. I thought I could do that on the practice field and in the meeting room with a couple hours a day. I think I I could have done a much better job of that. I have players with whom I have a wonderful relationship. I hear from somebody. Of course, now we're talking about thousands of people, so this is maybe not something that I, I ought to be bragging about, but I am I'm bragging. I hear from one of my guys almost every day now, and it thrills my soul. And it's not always complimentary. Coach, why didn't you tell us about this? But, but a lot of times they'll say, we remember what you said about leadership. I mean, we remember the characteristics of a champion. But what I would say to young Bill Curry is, number one, you don't know everything. You don't know much of anything. I thought I knew a lot of football. 1976, I was uh, given my first coaching job as the offensive line coach at Georgia Tech. I had uh, the worst possible preparation to be a an assistant coach or a head coach in college football is to play in the NFL for a long time. And that's what I had just done. I had just completed 10 years as a player in the NFL. And what that means is this. That means, in my case, I was always the smallest lineman on every team. And it took every fiber of my being to survive as an offensive center. So I knew a lot about playing football as an offensive center. I didn't know anything else. I didn't understand recruiting. I didn't understand relationships. I didn't understand staff structure. I didn't understand fundraising. So all those things that are fundamental to success as a college coach, I thought, and and worst of all, I thought I knew a lot about them. I didn't. When you think you're smart and you're stupid, that's a real bad combination. Great advice to live by, actually. I wanted to challenge you a little bit on that because – you might not have come in with a lot of knowledge, but in 1980, you are becoming the head coach of Georgia Tech. And in 85, you win the All-American Bowl and you're named ACC Coach of the Year. So something happened early in your coaching career that allowed you to have this results. But what I wanted to ask you was, what were the first things you did in 1980, if you can remember, when you got hold of that team that drove that result in 1985? I walked into the first team meeting And honest to goodness, I don't know what people's, I mean, each of us chooses what our religious perspective is going to be. I believe very much in free will. And uh, I I grew up in in a Christian tradition. And then I saw my very hard to live with father become a wonderful human being. And all of a sudden that conversion stuff started to make sense to me. But then I became very much a lost sheep. For a long time, I ran as far and fast as I could. I'm not proud of that. But then I walked into a team meeting with 105 teenage males in the heart of Atlanta. And I knew, I did know this in my heart and in my head, I was responsible for those kids 24-7. 
Now, we're talking about Atlanta, Georgia, at a time when we were having the missing and murdered children's episode. 30 children disappeared over a period of a few months. I, have, I was having parents call. I was a brand new head coach, and I was getting phone calls. Is my son safe on your campus? I look into those eyes, and my life was changed in a heartbeat because I realized I, I either had to walk right back upstairs and call the president of the university. Georgia Tech is an institute. It's not a university. I had to call Dr. Pettit, our president, and resign, or I had to take the leap of faith that I was capable of being responsible for 105 teenage lives 24-7 because this was a lot more than a football game. And the way they looked at me and those intelligent eyes, and we're talking about really bright guys now, and I'm sure other schools have plenty of bright guys, but you don't come close to Georgia Tech unless you've got a little bit of something between your ears. And every one of them, while they might not have been Rhodes Scholar candidates, they were very bright, and they were looking at me, and they were looking at me, some of them happy, some of them very skeptical. If I have a strength, it is that I can tell pretty much what you think of me in a, a few minutes, whether you say anything or not. I knew Georgia Tech was betting the house on me, and I knew that by the time I had visited with them for 10 or 15 minutes, I knew that I was not going to go see Dr. Pettit and resign, that I was going to stay, and that somehow together we were going to link arms, and the, that that bunch of guys and I were going to get this done together. And uh, it, became an, it became an obsession instantly. And I love them with all my heart, and I still do. I've heard you talk about the importance of thinking under duress, decision-making, and you took that from Coach Dodd. But was it a, something that you practiced and a key part of your coaching style as well? Well, when you're a college coach, uh, you're always under duress. Almost any college coach that did it for a long time will tell you that there's the catchphrase that's overused is a crisis a day. Well, that's low. That's a low estimate. If you've got that many creatures in the middle of a campus, even if it's not in the middle of Atlanta, Georgia, there are going to be several crises a day. There's going to be an academic crisis. There's going to be a behavior crisis. You're going to get a phone call from the local cops and say, this guy smarted off to a policeman and he was jaywalking and, and then he acted like he was going to hit the policeman. You know, all, you're talking about linebackers. You're talking about tough guys that grew up in Los Angeles or Chicago or whatever, and you bring them in and then you got some more that are from the mountains and they never been around a team that had more than 14 guys on it. So you're bringing this amazing melting pot together and it's a it's an almost perfect picture of the united states of america and one of the great privileges in life is to teach these guys how to love each other when they've been taught by our sick society to hate each other's guts so all of that begins and i'm not sure i'm answering your question but there's one person responsible and so that's where it starts, is dealing with all of those things and keeping a level head. And if, I, if I've completely got off the subject, then bring me back. No, Coach Gary, it's a wonderful lesson. 
And it comes through again later on. I want to talk to you a lot about your experience with different elements of society and different backgrounds and demographics. But I still want to trace your career along a little bit if we can. And this next question is one that really fascinates me because it's about the time you leave Georgia Tech and you go to the University of Alabama. And in 1988, you win the Sun Bowl against Army. But what's so fascinating about that game is you suspend your quarterback, Jeff Dunn, right before the game for breaking team rules, and you still go on and win. I imagine people must ask you about it all the time. But what I want to ask you is, when people ask you, when they say, Coach Curry, I'm setting up team rules, what advice have you got for me? What do you tell them? Ironically, I've, I've had that question very seldom. I think people don't want to ask me because <laughs> because there were actually three incidents at bowl games where I sent somebody home. Uh, one time I sent several, um, including our best players, home from a, a, what, what was a very big game at, for Georgia Tech. And I wasn't happy about any of those, and I didn't think any of those made me into any kind of hero. And I didn't think that for an instant. I hated doing it, but I had told the guys exactly what the rules were, and so we could not deviate. But very few people asked me about setting up rules. I did have one very prominent coach, that's a good friend of mine, call me and said, I want to have breakfast with you at the convention. So I said, oh, great. I mean, he's a wonderful guy. I just love him. So we sit down and he says, don't ever do that again. Take their money, but don't suspend them from the game because you're going to get beat and then you're going to get fired. So do you understand what I'm saying to you? I mean, he was heated about it. So uh, what I'm trying to tell you is not many people ask me my opinion about making the rules. <laughs> it was a brave thing to do. And I think, I reckon it could have been the making of your coaching career almost. I, I've read your book. I'm not totally familiar with your story, having grown up in Australia, but it's such a strong message. The quarterback, same as everyone else, break the rules, you don't play. And you still went on and won. I just find it fascinating. Well, it is fascinating. And, and it is a fundamental part of leadership. If you're going to have a rule, you better enforce it. Because if you don't, you'll lose the, the, the team instantly. I'll tell you a, a question that a lot of people ask me about the coaching career, what was the highlight? What was the high point of your whole career? But I, I include in my playing career. And uh, it was this moment. We were at the All-American Bowl in Birmingham, and it was the biggest deal for Georgia Tech in many years because at that time it was really hard to get in any bowl. And we were going to play Michigan State, and George Perlis was a great coach, and they had – Alonzo White, who was an all-time rushing leader for the Big Ten Conference, and, and we had some really good players. And I'm not going to call their names, but I sent four of our best players home, including our star quarterback and our All-American wide receiver who, was our, who made all our big plays. I sent them home because I had told the guys, look, I'm going to do something that I don't normally do, but while we're here in Atlanta preparing, we're going to have no curfew. You can, you guys can have parties. I better not. I'm going to put captains in charge. You can have fun and enjoy this time because you've earned it. But once we get on the bus and we head to Birmingham, we only have one thing on our mind, and that's to win the game, period. If you break any rule at all, you're going to come home. Does anybody have a question about that? So – when we had the 
incident that, that the guys did break the rule and I did send them home. We had such powerful leaders on our defense. And it got back to us that some of the folks from the other party, I mean, like the families of the other coaches, uh, one of the wives said something to one of our wives, like, you know, this could have been a, a very good game. And our wife said, well, what do you mean by that? She said, well, I mean, now that your coach sent all your good players home, it's, it's not even going to be interesting to watch. It's going to be such a blowout. Well, somehow that got back to me and it got back to our team. And I saw these two great leaders and players, Ted Roof and Pat Swilling, who were dominant players, uh, one African-American, one Caucasian. And I saw them talking during practice. We were at Legion Field. And, and they were the kind of guys, if they had thought I was wrong, they would have probably confronted me in front of the team. Coach, we think you're wrong. And I, and I thought, wow, this, this is likely to be interesting. Sure enough, Roof came up to me right at the end of practice and said, we need to have a team meeting. I said, okay, I'll meet you in the locker room. You guys go ahead and have your meeting. He said, no, we want you to stay. We want you to hear, to be here. I said, oh, wow, okay. All right, I'm here, team meeting. Roof said, you know, I'm not a real uh, sentimental guy, Coach, and he's certainly not. He said, um, some of us have been talking. We know why you did what you did. We love you. We're going to win the game. That's the team meeting. And that was the highlight of my coaching career. Not the fact that we won the game. Had we lost the game, it would have been the same. Because for them to get the message and to carry that throughout the rest of their lives so that they could then have a family and run an organization and do whatever it is that they needed to do and understand that you got to have that structure you got to have an understanding that we're all willing to make certain sacrifices and we're all going to do it or we're not going to make this work. For them to understand that when they're 19, 20, 21 years old, wow. I just, I was just so proud of them for that. And I'll never forget it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Coach Curry, your book, The Ten Men You Meet in the Huddle, is a fantastic read. There's a great chapter in there on your high school coach, Bill Badgett. You say that he was the first to tell you that football is just life marked off in 100 yards. And when you get hit in those yards, you either get up or you lie there and you wallow in self-pity. And what I wanted to ask you was, is it possible, and if it is, how? How do you get someone and how do you teach someone to get up and keep going? 
Well, for you, you got to, first of all, there's a little luck involved. Like in my case, I had two goals in life. I wanted to marry Carolyn Newton and I wanted to pitch for the Yankees in that order because of persistence and um, because of my natural charm. I was successful in uh, number one, Mary Carolyn Newton. I also asked her, I asked her years later, I said, what happened? You wouldn't even talk to me. You wouldn't walk down the hall with me. And then all of a sudden you were interested when we were seniors. And she said, you grew a foot. You were five, two when you started trying to get a date with me. And, and I was five, three. I was taller than you. You grew a foot. That was what happened. I said, oh, oh. so it was an, accident of nature but and and then the only thing that kept me from uh, pitching for the Yankees there was only one thing and it was talent so I wanted desperately to do that but coach Badgett was so demanding and it was so hard to be out there playing for him that I decided to do what a lot of little fat boys decide to do I decided to quit I'm going to take this ridiculous equipment these pads, I'm going to go back up to that stupid locker room that smells like ammonia and illness. And I'm going to turn them in and I'm going to go back up to the pitcher's mound where I belong. And then I thought a little more. I got a problem. You see, because my father lived at our house. And if I quit, <laughs> I couldn't go home. And he, he just said, look, I didn't make you go out for football. I didn't even ask you to go out, but you went out on your own and you're not going to let your teammates down. The first great lesson, you're going to stay out there. You're going to finish this and you may not ever like it. That's all right. It's not, there's something you and I don't have control over, but you're not going to quit. You're not going to quit anything. And that shaped most of the rest of my life. And that's what fathers are supposed to do anyhow. That's the only reason that I survived Badgett because, and I never played the way I should have for Coach Badgett, and I've always regretted that. But he, every single day, he found a way to get the message to us. Football is just life marked off in 100 yards, men, in 10-yard increments. And you're going to get knocked down, and you've got a decision to make every time you get knocked down. You can lie there and wallow in self-pity, or you can get your butt up and go on to the next play. And learn to be a man. See, we're out here in all this slop and it's March and it's cold and the wind's blowing. And when we come back in August, it's going to be 105 degrees Fahrenheit and it's never going to be comfortable and you're going to hate every minute of that. But one day you're going to look back and say, thank God I did that because that's where I became a man. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. I also had some great teammates that challenged me and made me decide to go hard. I want to talk to you about those teammates in a minute, actually, but I want to talk to you a little bit about love. I've got this great quote um, from your coach, Curry. You say, one thing all child psychologists agree on in child rearing, teaching or coaching is that a person who is loved learns to love. With so many players, 105 you talked about a minute ago, and all the assistant coaches that are connected to a football team, how can you maintain this type of compassion without depleting yourself? Well, I don't think I did. I don't think I maintained the, the level that I, that I should have. And, and I got some warnings. I had one player, God bless him, <laughs> old Mike Martin, great guy. I, I had the players in once a year to visit, and I patted myself on the back for that. I should have had them in five times a year. 
That's what I, I regret that. I just should have found a way. But anyhow, once a year, I would sit the guys down and we would talk. I just want to know how you're doing with what's Mike was such a pleasant and a fine young man and a good engineering student and a good linebacker and all that. I, I look forward to him saying a lot of wonderful things about our program. So he sits down and we talk for a while. And I said, well, Mike, let's be serious here now. And I, I want you to tell me the truth. What do you think about what we're doing? He said, you want the truth? Well, that's your first signal. This is not going to be fun. And I said, of course, I want the truth. That's all I could expect from you. He said, well, you talk about family a lot and how you love us and all that. But uh, you walk into breakfast and I'm sitting over there with three or four guys at a table. You get your food and you walk all the way to the other side of the, the dining hall. You sit down by yourself. You eat your food and you walk out. You don't ever sit with us. And so what are we supposed to think when you talk about family? That's, that's the antithesis of family. I didn't even realize I was doing that. That's how stupid I was. Changed everything for me. I just sat there. I've seen him several times through the years since then. Each time I've, I said, do you? Yeah, yeah, I remember, Coach. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm sure you appreciate it. But I'll never forget that if I live to be a thousand. Going back to if you say you're going to do something, you better do it. You better not say one thing and do another ever. And so the child doesn't interpret love by saying, gee, I love you here. Let me hug you. He interprets love or she interprets love by who you are and whether you do what you say you're going to do. I thought I was doing great with our son. And I find out years later when I skipped all his little league games, that was devastating to him. Well, I did that because I was at football practice raising everybody else's kids. Well, I had, I could have changed the practice schedule. I could have done a lot of things. So biggest mistake of my life was not being at our son's events. Now he's got five boys and he's at every single one of their things. And uh, the lesson is clear. Well, talking about lessons, your book, which is more of a philosophy book actually than a sporting memoir. I'm, I'm not finished it yet, but I'm finding it fascinating. And just your insights and, and I think your honesty, which comes across in the way that you're very self-reflective. But the story that really touches me and I think is so pertinent to where we are in the world is about when you get to the Packers and you've never been in the huddle with an African-American person and you share that wonderful story about Willie Davis, how he helped you understand how to talk about race. When you talk to people today about the importance of diversity in all its different shapes, I mean, you talked about female coaches in the opening as well. So when you talk about diversity to people, what is it you say to them today? What's your message? My message is, it's not my message. It's the underlying mythology of the United States of America, which we have never really seriously tried to implement, that all men are created equal and that each is endowed with inalienable rights, which are as follows and the, the Declaration of Independence. We said that, and we don't do it, and it's embarrassing. The great thing about the huddle, I watched our, our, our granddaughter play on a softball team last year. We've watched her play softball for years. She had a group. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how many girls there were in this particular group. They were in the same class. 
and there was Asian American, African American, a couple of white kids, and they love each other. They're going to love each other the rest of their lives. Now, where else does that happen? Is that happening at the Sunday school? Oh, no. Oh, no. Not at our church. No way. Is that happening at, at the uh, synagogue? Is that happening at the mosque? Is, that, is, it, is it happening at the marketplace? Is it happening in business? Sometime in business, when somebody understands how to create a huddle, I think it does happen. I think my dad pulled it off in some of his business ventures, but I don't have him anymore to talk to, so I, I wish I did. But here's the thing. You cannot step in a successful huddle in our sport and be a racist or be a hater. You can't step in there and say, I don't like, I hate Australians. I'm not doing business with anybody from the Prague. I don't like the way they drink beer over there. I hate their guts. You can't be one of the good old boys that hates everybody that's not just like you. We just went through an episode in Atlanta where a bunch of people were killed, murdered by a kid, 21 years old, who went and bought himself a gun, did not have to have a waiting period, did not have to get his ID checked. What are we doing in our country? We're living a lie. But when you step in that huddle, you better be ready to accept everybody. And here's the great thing. If I'm the coach, I get a chance to take some guy from South Central L.A., <laughs> where we've recruited him, Maybe he's 6'4", 280, he runs 4'6". He's smart. He comes all the way to the other side of the country for some reason we don't understand. We're just glad to have him. And I put him in the locker room next to a mountain boy from the hills of North Georgia who, like his coach, has never been in a huddle with an African-American person. Hadn't seen many African-American people unless they were working at the filling station or down at the feed mill. He comes to me and he says, I'm not dressing next to that guy. And I can say, oh, yes, you are. Now, you can't do that, coach. Oh, I can do anything I want to. And you can go home if you want to. I'd like you to stay. It matters to me. But you're going to dress where I tell you to dress. You're going to go to class where I tell you to go to class. Because you and I made a deal. You signed that contract, didn't you? That grant and aid. So you dress where I tell you to dress. And what happens? He goes out on the field, and it's just what Badgett did with us. You sweat and you bleed. And in football, you can't even put your jersey on by yourself. you got to have your teammate to pull your jersey over your shoulder pads. You have to have your teammate to get dressed. So what happens? you got to get your teammate to help you get undressed, to get your jersey off. And what happens? You find out the sweat smells the same on everybody. And I get busted in my mouth, and now I got I got blood and snot and everything, dirt's everywhere. And we realize that blood's the same color coming out of all of us. And those two guys that thought they hated each other, <laughs> they learned to love each other. I've had them come to me and say, I actually like this guy now, Coach. I say, yeah, I thought that might happen. And then, then the real miracle happens. This doesn't always happen, but it, when it does, it is so beautiful. I'm walking out of the stadium right next to the team bus, and there's some mamas out there, and they got different pigmentation. They're from different parts of the world, and they are hugging because their two sons are on the same team. And then I hear things like Thanksgiving dinner. One of them invites the other one home for the first time ever. There's somebody different 
at the Thanksgiving table. It's really hard to hate a 17-year-old that's bragging on your cooking. It really is. So lives get changed. And, and I'm not saying that it happens every day and that, that we're responsible for changing the world. But the world has been changed for a whole bunch of people because of our sport. Coach Curry, reading about you and learning about you, there's a theme that comes across to me, and that's this whole idea of making decisions and thinking about the future first, whether it's suspending a player to set a standard, whether it's not letting players get their way because they have biases and beliefs that are outdated. And there was one story that really brought this home for me, and it's a story you shared about attending uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's funeral and how some of your family tried to stop you from going. And they did that by reminding you you had an obligation to your daughter, so you should stay away. But your reply was just priceless, and you said, I'm going to that funeral because I am thinking about my child. This whole idea of making decisions that will potentially echo into the future seems a common theme. And I wanted to ask you just what advice, thoughts, or if anything you have on decision-making, and maybe even the question is, how do you talk to your own children about decision-making and the criteria they should be using when they make these life-changing decisions in the moment? For whatever it's worth, and I give her mom most of the credit for this, but um, she's a very perceptive person. She's 53 years old. And as I mentioned, she has two daughters of her own and a wonderful husband and a wonderful marriage. And she is relentless on the matter of race. Now, is that a coincidence? Is that, I don't know. She just sent me a podcast that I highly recommend. And it's a conversation between Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen. It goes on for a couple of hours. It is powerful on this very subject, those two, imagine those two guys at great lengths. And why did Bruce write certain songs when he did? And, and what did, what happened when he stood up and began to sing? He got booed because he stood up and began to sing a song about this very subject. So our daughter, the, the very daughter that we were thinking of when we went to Dr. King's uh, funeral march has taken up the mantle and has walked in demonstrations with her daughters and her husband and, and us. We haven't been to all of them. And there's some that I missed and I'm, I'm deeply regret it just because I didn't know about them. And that's my fault. I don't think it's a total accident that she ended up being so sensitive to this issue. And of course she teaches. So she's, she's has a chance to teach a mix of human beings that, where she gets a chance to be an influence in the direction of um, diversity and caring about other people, regardless of their background. Coach Curry, you've had a ripple effect on so many people. We talked earlier about the thousands of people you've coached and the fact that you're getting WhatsApp messages and messages from people every day. And perhaps my last question would be, as you reflect on your life as a coach, a teacher, mentor, what's the legacy that you hope that you have left? I hope my guys will get together and maybe have a few beers with you. There's some of them that can certainly consume a few beers. <laughs> I learned that the hard way. I want them to always want to be together. I want them to love each other. And I can't make that happen. 
some of my most notable failures is where we just could not get that bond with our guys. I take responsibility for that. But I hope somebody in the midst of the conversation will look at the other guy and say, you know what? I thought you were ridiculous. I didn't like you. Coach Curry made me dress next to you. You know what? I love you now. And um, it's because I had to hang out with you, even though I didn't want to. And uh, Coach Curry made me do it. I I would like for that conversation to happen. And if it happens more than a few times, then that sort of thing, that is a ripple effect that goes to generations and families and cultures. Coach Curry, I think the idea of a ripple effect across generations and cultures is a wonderful way to end. I want to thank you for your time today. It's been an absolute privilege spending some time talking to you and learning more about your story. And I look forward to sharing it with a, with a much wider audience. Well, the privilege is mine, Paul. You've, you've got such a gift for evoking everything that's down inside me. And I've enjoyed this very, very much. The Great Coaches Podcast. You've been listening to our discussion with Bill Curry. We hope you found it as inspiring and insightful as we did. Bill is the type of coach and leader I'd like my own daughter to experience one day. There were so many highlights, but the ones that stayed with me afterwards were how he played for some of the greatest American football coaches of all time in Vince Lombardi and Don Shula, and his explanation about what set them apart from all other coaches. The importance of following through and acting when players break team rules and the wonderful story he shared to illustrate this and wanting to leave a legacy of people being more tolerant and less racist that he hopes has had a ripple effect through generations of families and cultures. I hope you enjoyed this as much as we did. Coming up next on the Great Coaches podcast, we'll be speaking to Tanya Oxterby. For me, it's about making sure that players and and staff that I work with, in particular staff, because I think it's really important, that they understand that they're there because they're good enough and that they have a skill set and that they, whilst they're not perfect and there's areas that they need to develop just like players do, that they bring something to the table. And it's generally something that I don't have, which is exactly why they're in, in our staff group. Or when you're a player, you've, you've got attributes that are that set you apart and you need to make those your super strength. They need You need to make those things your your go-to and not always focus on the things that you're not great at. There's an element of that 100%, but also focus on the things you're really good at and really embrace that and make that your go-to. And just before we go, coaches are not usually the type of people who seek the spotlight. And so if you can put us in contact with a great coach that you know has a unique story to share, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us using the details in the show notes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.